This is the PR Podcast, a show about how public relations helps you tell your story to the world. We talk with great PR practitioners who have the skills, creativity, and just plain savvy to get their clients noticed. Now here's your host, Jody Fisher. Hey, everyone, and welcome to the PR Podcast. I'm Jody Fisher. Thanks for joining us. Well, don't forget to send us your submission for your PR Podcast plug. You know, we joke around that as PR people, we're great at promoting our clients, but we're lousy at promoting ourselves. Um, and so we created this to make it easy for you to, to promote yourself and more specifically, your passion project. You know, it's that thing, your side hustle, right? Maybe you don't even make any money off of it. It's the thing you love to do. Uh, maybe you've got a newsletter. Maybe you've got a killer TikTok or a LinkedIn page or something like that. Um, maybe you've got another resource that you want to share with the community. Maybe you want an award. Um, let us know by sending us a DM on any of our social channels. Uh, Twitter is probably the best or easiest. But you can certainly uh, reach out to us anywhere or um, through uh, uh, my personal website, jodyfisherpr.com. There's an email address on there. Um, but send us uh, your PR podcast plug, and we will mention you at the top of an upcoming episode. Now let's get on with our show for today. We have a terrific guest. John O'Leary is vice president of Susan Davis International, where he leads technology, government, and nonprofit clients in all areas of crisis communications, strategic communications, and media relations. He started his career as a newspaper reporter and has nearly two decades of experience in journalism, marketing, and public relations. He's been published in PR Daily and Capital Communicator and has been a guest on some other PR-related podcasts. But today, we got him here. Sean, welcome to the PR Podcast. Thank you. Welcome. <laughs> glad, glad to be here. It's fun to be the uh, the interviewee as opposed to uh, getting the interviews. <laughs> well, right. It's a, it's it's a different it's a different vibe, right? <laughs> so tell us about your background. You and I have similar backgrounds. Both you know reporters turned PR people. Tell us about your background, where you got started, and how you made the transition. Yeah. So uh, yeah. So I started my career as a daily newspaper reporter up in Connecticut, a uh, small daily called the Chronicle um, in Willimantic, had about a ten thousand uh, circulation. So I started my career there, and it was a very traditional newspaper role. I was, you know, I was the cub reporter covering local towns, you know, <laughs> town council meetings, assembly meetings, you know, the police reports, all that fun stuff. So I did that for about four years, and then I moved over to the Hartford Business Journal, um, so kind of shifted to more, you know, corporate coverage, business coverage. And frankly, that was around the time of the recession of the late 2000s, where a lot of journalists were getting laid off, you know, not only because of the economy, but obviously the internet coming and kind of shifting how you know outlets work so i was laid off <laughs> so my shift was a little bit forced to communications um but it was sort of interesting so my first communications show was with the national ms society in connecticut um and i had actually worked with the woman there on some stories and she said you know she was telling me for years i would probably be good at pr um and i was like no no i'm a reporter i'm always going to be a reporter um and obviously i'm not a reporter anymore um so that's kind of how i shifted working for the national ms society uh, and I will say that sort of that has kind of informed my work in PR, just starting at the MS Society, because we were a very small nonprofit. So I got involved in everything. So it wasn't just the PR piece of, you know, I'm going to get an interview with somebody. I'm going to be, you know, be on TV. It was like the newsletters. It was updating the websites. It was marketing. So I kind of got a crash course in marketing and communications, um, which has served me very well uh, moving forward. 
You know, it's interesting that you mentioned that because my first job in PR after leaving um, uh, the news world, and I never call myself a journalist because um, journalists are are sort of uh, very educated people. I was a beat reporter. <laughs> I was a I was a street reporter. I was running around with my microphone, going to fires and getting my yeah. boots dirty. Um, but um, uh, my first job as a PR person was at a, 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 a college. Um, and got involved in lots of different things in a similar way that you said you got involved in lots of different things. And I frequently tell young people who are getting into PR or even people who are further along in their career who want to get into PR to go to a nonprofit mm -hmm. for, two re for two reasons. One is because a nonprofit will not be um, as selective or really have um, you know access to a larger talent pool that an agency might, right? Um, and they will also, I think, be far more appreciative of the background of a journalist um, because they'll understand uh, the, the, the skills that the journalist brings to the table in terms of understanding what news is and understanding how to multitask do lots of different things. Um, and so it's interesting to hear you tell the story about how your first job was working with a nonprofit. I was at a nonprofit in higher ed. Um, so similar similar background there. That, that's that got to have really informed how you moved through your career and all the way along to, to Susan Davis International, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's, there's sort of two things I took from that first job that is kind of, you know, kind of carried with me. And the first thing that's also goes back to being a newspaper reporter is just figuring out the nugget of a story that is gonna get the media's attention is gonna get you media coverage. You know, when we were doing the MS Society, frankly, it was pretty easy um, because the stories we were telling were incredible. There were people that were, you know, overcoming MS or their caregivers who were, you know, spending so much time and, you know, volunteering their time. So it was sort of an easy <laughs> intro to PR when you're telling stories like that, but it did sort of inform me moving forward that, you know, you have to figure out the story. Um, and I think that's the big thing, especially when I started to move on to work to more corporate clients, especially technology clients, they are so, um, I'm trying to say this politely, you know, but they're very focused on the sales piece of it, right? It's very internal what they're thinking about, right? How are we going to meet our numbers? How are we going to sell this? And as my job is sort of the PR person, and I kind of take this from my experience as a reporter, it's like, I know what you're trying to say, but how are you going to get people to listen to that? You know, and kind of funneling that story through. Um, so I just think that that's sort of been my differentiator through my career is just that storytelling piece. And I think part of it too, and this also comes from being a reporter, is just telling people when something is a bad idea. <laughs> As a newspaper reporter, um, I kind of learned to sort of not hold my tongue on things. Um, and I think that's also served me well because I think that clients, I think one thing I've noticed with clients is they do not want to just have someone to just keep saying yes, right? If you hear a bad idea, part of your job as a PR pro is to say, wait a minute, <laughs> that's a bad idea, that's a bad message, whatever it is. Um, and it's also solution-based, right? It's not like this is terrible, let's throw it out. It's this is terrible, let's fix it. Um, that kind of mindset, um, I think, has also come in handy for me. Yeah, I frequently use the phrase, it's great that this is important to you, to the client. Let's yeah. make it important to everybody else. How do we make it important to the, the media that you want to cover it or the audiences that you want to activate whether yep. they're buying your widget or they're going to your thing or whatever they're doing. Um, we've got to make it important to that external audience and, and, and make it, get it outside the four walls of the business. Yeah. And um, I think that's one so, of the most, yeah, I was going to say, sorry, you just kind of maybe think of something, but I think one of the most important things we do at, at SDI, Susan Davis International, is the audience piece of it, which you just described. Because there's so many, like the, the audiences are so fragmented right now between social media, traditional media, sort of how they're getting their information. So I think the audience piece of it, especially in the last 10 years, like when I started communications, we were thinking very basic in terms of audience, right? Let's go to the media, let's go to an email. And now there's a dozen different ways you can reach somebody. So that's a huge thing that's changed recently. 
let's stick on that and get a little granular. You know, when you're talking about broadcasting a message out to an audience, um, what is your thought process? Or maybe could you describe your thought process of, you know, how do you identify um, what audiences or what media to use, uh, whether that's earned, owned, social, whatever, how do you identify what media to use to get to your target audience? Yeah, that's such a great question. I think it's it's so different by client. And I think the most important thing to figure out is almost working from the end to the start, right? What are your goals? What is the end goal of this project? What is the end goal of this campaign? You know, because for example, for nonprofits, sometimes their end goal, even though media relations is part of it, like fundraising is their ultimate goal. You know, so at the end of the day, they want to raise a certain amount of money, whether they have, whether that's through an article in the Washington Post or a viral social media campaign, at the end of the day, they just want the fundraising. You know, for others, it's broad awareness, right? And then that would be, okay, where are the, you know, the top tier outlets that we're looking for? But then we also have some clients, especially in technology, where it's really not niche, but they're going after specific audiences, right? If I'm selling cybersecurity solutions, you know, what are the cyber piece, you know, what are the cyber outlets that I want to go to? If I'm selling the Department of Defense, you know, what are the defense outlets I want to go to? I, so I think that it's, it's very unique. And I think that's something that's changed where I don't think that there's just like a cookie cutter list that you can give to a client. Um, I mean, you could kind of give it as a starting point, but it would be different between each client. You know, even clients that are doing the exact same thing might have different targeted outlets. Um, and then the piece between earned, owned, and social, from my perspective, I kind of just think about those all sort of working together. Um, you know, an own campaign has to work with an earned campaign that has to work with your social. So frankly, from, from my perspective, that's almost, I wouldn't want to say a red flag, but when we work with new clients, if we notice things are really like in silos, like the social media team isn't connecting with the comms team, that's something we have to change. Um, and ditto for like marketing and communications paid and earned. You just got to make sure everything's sort of working in concert. And there's so many more moving pieces than there were, you know, even five years ago. It, it can really be the Achilles heel of a good campaign is to mm -hmm. have those teams siloed like, like that. Um, and, and, you know, we're, we're all aware that there, you know, can be a lot of chiefs in a room and everybody wants to guard their own little, their little turf, right? Whether it's social or whether it's earned or whether it's owned. Um, but they really do have to talk across each other because you have to be sending one message. Mm -hmm. um, and that, and that's why I like to re and I want to get your perspective on this. That's why I like to start any kind of a campaign with the exercise of writing a news release or a press release. Mm -hmm. Um, and it, and it really, it be, for two reasons, one, it's a very simple thing for people to wrap their heads around like, oh, we're going to write a release, right? Everybody gets that. Oh, let's write a press release. Even though many times that's not the thing you need to do. But the writing, the press release yields all this other content that can be used across all those other platforms. What's your take on that? And do you use news releases? Yeah, I was about to say, I actually love news releases for several reasons. And especially right now in the age of Google, it's like when the first thing when you look for a company, the news releases are always going to be there. So I love the fact that if you have things, I mean, again, it has to be something worth announcing. But if you do have something worth announcing, whether it's, you know, a new hire, a new project, a new whatever, I think it's good to get a press release out there because to your point, not only does it get the news out there, but it can serve as a launching point for other things. Um, and I've noticed this the most, one of our corporate clients has made a, several hires like the last six to nine months. And we always kind of have a quick conversation with the person we're writing the press release about, just kind of get their background, what they're in, you know, what their focus areas are. And several times coming out of that initial call, it's like, you know what, <laughs> you just said what could be an op-ed, or I think that might be something we could do an interview for. So my big thing with clients is I just like getting time on their calendar just to pick their brains, whether it's 15 minutes, 30 minutes, 
nothing, you know, I don't want to take too much of their time, but you can learn so much about somebody. And this is another reporter trick, right? Just get them to start talking and keep talking. So if someone talks for about 15 minutes straight, you're going to learn everything about them. Um, so I think that to your point, and whether it's a press release or whether like an op-ed, but just some piece of content that forces that initial discussion, and then you can build so much more from it. Yeah, you can really discover your subject matter experts that way too, right? I mean, if somebody comes on board with some special expertise, you're always looking for subject matter experts. Mm -hmm. You're always looking, and that it's probably one of the easiest ways to get press for an organization or a company or a nonprofit or whatever is, is by putting uh, their subject matter experts out there to comment about mm -hmm. on news that is going on, right? Do you use subject matter experts? Absolutely. And I was about to say, I mean, especially in the tech world uh, and being in DC with, you know, the federal agency world, op-eds are such a great way to get, you know, content into the media. And again, this goes back to what I was talking about with reporters, like newsrooms are smaller now. So they have less people that are able to actually do interviews. So they're looking for more contributed content. So that's an opportunity. Um, and then just to your point about the op-eds, like what I've noticed a lot is that I will talk to a subject matter expert about what they think they want to talk about. And as they're talking, they will sort of unknowingly stumble into an even better story or something that ties into a news hook. Um, so it's, and I love using subject matter experts. And the other thing too, is like, once you get like an op-ed out there, you know, you can sort of use it as a credibility builder for future interviews. And the other thing that we've noticed a lot of that's been really great is that people will see an op-ed and they will invite an SME to be like a panelist for like a webinar or a speaking session at an event. So it kind of builds up that credibility. It's one of those things that you can just kind of keep building upon. So from my perspective, um, especially in, you know, COVID has kind of made that too, is that, you know, outlets like that contributed content, especially if it's well-written and it's about good topics. So that's an excellent way, you know, for our clients to kind of get their, their message out there. So that's a, a huge one for us. Yeah, the op-ed uh, can sometimes be the holy grail for, for a client, right? They love um, the, the idea of a long form piece of 800 to a thousand word piece in their name, the publication, their daily newspaper or their, you know, their specialty journal or whatever mm -hmm. with their name and their headshot next to it. Right. That just, that strikes at their ego. But as you <laughs> said, it, it's also, it's also a really positive thing. Do yeah. you have a formula or a way or a method that you explore an op, you know, because the CEO comes, you know, I want to write an opinion piece. I want to write an op-ed. Do you have a way you walk them through that process of getting to the point where you've actually got something you can write? Yeah, you know, it's funny because this, again, this kind of goes back to how sort of different people operate. Um, so sometimes with people like, or uh, with um, SMEs I work with, I'll like put together like an outline or maybe like a suggested abstract of like, I think this is the direction we should go in. So let's talk specifically about that. But then for other SMEs, it is really just as I hear them talk, I will just be taking notes, you know, live stream. And then immediately afterwards, be like, these are two to three of the ideas that came to my head. You know, how, how does this feel to you? Um, so I, it's like a very collaborative process. And it, again, it just kind of goes back to the uniqueness of things, which I, there's just like no one formula that I've seen that works, you know, for op-eds, for ghostwriting. Uh, because, you know, for some people I ghostwrite, they sort of like trust me completely. So they're like, just write it <laughs> and send it to me. And then other people are very protective over their writing. So either they want to do a first draft or they want to do the outline. And then you kind of, you know, clean it up to a point where it's good for media. Um, so the process can be very different. I think that's another thing that a PR, good PR pro knows <laughs> is how to work with a CEO top level executive and make them feel, okay, this process works for you and I'll make it work for me too. That's great. That's great. Are there, are there things in your experience you've found that are sort of like the kiss of death for an op-ed 
something that you know maybe the client insists or wants to put in there and you know that will just trigger a reaction in the editor to say nope we're not using it that way yeah the, the easiest one is just on the tech side when the marketing sneaks in there they really want to get the name of the product in and a lot of the times you know you can write an op-ed that mentions the product but you just can't name it right you can talk about what it does you can talk about the outcomes you just can't say hey we're this company selling this product <laughs> and too often you know, on the op-ed side, you know, these tech companies, that's what they want to kind of get in there. Um, and I will say this is also more true of like sort of startup tech companies. Um, I worked for a startup tech company about 10 years ago and the CEO just did not understand <laughs> that like the marketing stuff is why this stuff will not get placed. We cannot talk about how great our software is. We cannot talk about how it's game changing. We have to focus on the issue. Um, so I think that's been the biggest red flag for me. It's just uh, sort of the inward view sometimes uh, from, from the tech side of things. Yeah, I, I have the same opinion. And in fact, I, what I tell clients is if you start to write a sentence that sounds like at our organization, mm -hmm. here's how we do it. If if you start to say that, just strike it, just get yes. it out. And the that's thing the I thing that's going to yeah. torpedo. It's like you, you can get that in there. You just have to word it a little bit differently so it doesn't come across that way. And it's sort of a skill that you you sort of learn over time. But yeah, it's <laughs> it, it just happens. Uh, you know, we've all worked the last couple of years uh, in this in this strange pandemic and now, I guess, post-pandemic era that we're in. Um, have you found any particular challenges or any takeaways from um, anything that you've come across working with your clients or working with journalists, any sort of trends or, or, or observations that you've made um, that are different from the way we used to do it before? I have a couple, but I'm wondering, I always like to ask what, what observations that other PR people have made yeah, in the so last couple of years. Yeah, I mean, the, the biggest thing for me is just obviously the sort of the formats of interviews. We're doing a lot more Zoom interviews and video interviews that we didn't do before COVID. But the biggest one for me is uh, at Susan Davis uh, International, we do some pretty big events, you know, events where the president has shown up, president, you know, events with like Tom Hanks, like we've done some big events. And in the past, they would only be covered by reporters on site. Like if you sent them a live stream in 2018, they were not going to watch a live stream. But 2021, 2022, there are still reporters that will watch and record or report on something from a live stream. Um, and a great example of the Military Women's Memorial we work with had their 25th anniversary um, back in October. And there were some military publications who were kind of located around DC that maybe in the past would have attended and covered, but instead they watched the live stream. You know, they got the quotes from the Secretary of Defense and they still wrote stories about it. So there was still media coverage, um, but it was just a very different dynamic. Um, so that's something that we talk about with, you know, our clients when they're doing events is a live stream is, you know, almost necessary right now, not only for the purposes of their own audience, but it also opens up a whole world of media to cover it. And it just goes back. I mean, I think everything is just goes back to the case of newsrooms have gotten so much smaller. You know, reporters have dual beats, they're taking photos, they're doing social media. So you need to give, make it easier for them. So they might be able to give you 30 minutes of their time to cover an event, but they don't have three hours to go to an event and go back. Um, so that, that the time piece, actually, as I'm talking this out loud, I think it's the reporter's time that has probably changed the most since COVID. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree with that. Uh, and, and I'm a big fan, people know, uh, of uh, when I have events with my clients that I actually, not only do I organize the event, but then I, I cover it like a reporter. I'm shooting video, I'm shooting photo, mm -hmm. because I'm sending that to desks after the fact. Yep. Because I know that just like you said, you know, fewer and fewer reporters 
um, have the time to actually come out and cover something. They'll write it from their desk. I'm specifically thinking about a print reporter. You know, if they can just get a couple of interviews over the phone, they'll cover an event like they were there, but they won't be there. <laughs> and they'll interview the people remotely. They'll, you know, the publication will send a reporter, uh, I'm sorry, a, a photographer or videographer to capture the image images. Yes. And, and they'll just write the story. Um, yes. So to your point, if the more that we can service the reporters mm -hmm. with the raw materials that they need, the better better coverage we'll get for our clients. I was about to say, that's such a good point about the, the photography too, that so many outlets now will just run a picture. And I would say uh, we did uh, over the summer last year, there was a groundbreaking for a new Gulf War Memorial in DC. And we got a lot of really good coverage, but the Associated Press sent a photographer and the photos from the AP photographer must have ended up in every daily newspaper in the country. You know, talk about broad awareness. And it was, I mean, we did get the photographer there, but there wasn't an AP reporter there. There wasn't an official AP story. There was just these really good pictures that were sent out. So the photography piece, and especially for social media too, like what do the reporters want to put on their social media feed when they do go to an event? They don't want to just put up some words. They want to put up, hey, this is a really cool thing I went to. This is a picture. So the imagery and the, and the video, that's a really good point that that is, you know, become, it was always important, but it's certainly become more important now. An AP photo, that is a total score because you and I both know that not just do you get the coverage that day yes. or that news cycle, but that goes in the AP photo library and lives forever. Yeah. And so <laughs> you could you could get traction on that photo five years down the line if it's, it's, it's that type of a that. photo. <laughs> well, you, I mentioned the Military Women's Memorial 25th anniversary. Uh, their AP took an incredible photo of the Secretary of Defense speaking at that event. And there have been subsequent times where there's been an unrelated story about the Secretary of Defense with this great picture. And it says, you know, Secretary at the Military Women's Memorial. So the client continues to kind of get that little bit of coverage. So yeah, love, love when the AP shows up. <laughs> love that. <laughs> That's great. Um, so, so looking ahead now in 2023, um, are you seeing any, we talked about some trends and sort of the way that the, the different ways that news has changed and different ways that reporters are covering the news. Are you seeing any trends now that are going to continue through 2023 or how are you adapting to reporters' needs as, as this year starts to kick off? Yeah, I was about to say, I mean, I, I don't think that anything that I haven't mentioned has changed. I think the one thing that we're sort of keeping an eye on is how reporters interact with social media and specifically Twitter. Obviously, that is changing. And we've just kind of noticed that a, a reporter's relationship with, with Twitter and social media has kind of been changing, you know, in the last couple of years. So I think that that's something, and I do not have a magic ball to say what's going to happen with it, but it does feel like there's sort of a shift happening, you know, with the social media piece of things. So I think that's something to keep an eye on. Um, but yeah, I just, unfortunately, I just feel like this contraction of the newsroom, um, one of the local um, outlets here announced a new reporter, and they basically announced that they were taking two beats into one. And this one person is going to be doing two. <laughs> so it's just one of those things where that I think is going to be the biggest issue, especially for PR pros, right? It's like, there are going to be less reporters to pitch, hopefully not less outlets. So how do you amplify the message? And you mentioned earlier with like earned media, digital media, social media. I just feel like no one is going to be a, just a strictly a PR pro in a couple of years because you'd be missing too much of the other stuff. <laughs> PR is going to be part of the job description. 
juggling the flaming chainsaws, as I like yes. to say. <laughs> <laughs> well, this has been a fun conversation. Thank you so much. We're going to segue now into the rapid fire question portion of our podcast. This is where we steal a page from inside the actor's studio. I have to update that reference because I'm probably <laughs> dating myself. But, uh, but we ask our guests a series of rapid fire questions. These are fun, meant to elicit a simple answer or maybe a laugh or two. So with your indulgence, here we go. Sean, rapid fire question number one. What is your favorite news source? Uh, the first thing I check every day is ESPN.com. <laughs> nice. So that they've would be been, my first news source. <laughs> they've been busy. Rapid fire question number two. What's your favorite social media platform? Uh, uh, it's Twitter, but I don't know if it's going to be Twitter much longer. <laughs> yeah, it's still mine too. It still reminds me of the old AP Newswire. It's yeah, just, you know, clack, me, clack, like, clack especially... in the corner of the newsroom. Yeah, and I'm like a sports fan too. So like the easiest way for me to catch up on sports is like three minutes of scrolling on Twitter. So until I find a better way to do that. <laughs> Makes sense. What are your teams? You, you brought it up. What are your teams? Uh, my team. So my parents I grew up on Long Island. So I'm a Jet fan. I'm an Islander fan. Um, I switch baseball. To, I live in DC. So I switch baseball teams to the Nationals. But um, Islanders and Jets are the, are the family team. So those are the two. I fortunately, they never win. But that's part of the deal. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, that's the long, long-suffering uh, uh, Long Island-based uh, sports fans for sure. Rapid fire question number three: Coffee or alcohol? Uh, if you asked me five years ago, alcohol. Today, coffee. Love it. Rapid fire question number four: What's your favorite on-the-run food? Now, you used oh, to be a reporter. Run. You used to be a reporter, so you got to have some good ones. I was about to say it's it's McDonald's. There was a McDonald's right next to our old newsroom, and I probably ate that for about four years straight. So, anytime I have McDonald's, I know I'm in a rush. <laughs> there you go. Rapid fire question number five, Sean. What do you want to be after you finish this career? Oh, man, I usually tell people that I want to become a novelist, but now that sports gambling is legal, um, I think I want to be like one of those old guys that like retires out to Vegas uh, and just gambles on sports. My grandfather retired out there like 20 years ago. And every time I visit him, I'm like, this is what I want to do. So sports gambler, I think would be. My oh, answer. wow. <laughs> That's a good one. We haven't had that one before. Well, Sean, this has been a great conversation. Please let people know how they can find you online. Yeah, so uh, website uh, is susandavis.com. Uh, my email is s-o-l-e-a-r-y at susandavis.com. Um, and for social media, just search for my name on LinkedIn um, and hopefully I'll pop up. Fantastic. We know you will. Thanks again, Sean. And thank you everyone for listening. Please remember to subscribe to the show. Connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at the PR podcast and send us a question or a comment. Our intro is by Christopher Apple. You can find him and his fantastic photography on Instagram at Christopher underscore A-P-P-O-L-D-T. Check him out there and hire him for all your photography needs. You can find me online at Jody Fisher on all the socials and on the web at JodyFisherPR.com. We'll see you next time on the PR Podcast.